0: Good morning, once again, beloved. I want to invite you to join me and turn your Bibles this morning to First Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 3, as many of you know. The uh, last couple of months or so, we've been going verse by verse through this wonderful first epistle by Peter, and this morning we come to verses 13 through 17. So First Peter chapter, th- two, chapter 3, 13 through 17. This is our normal practice. I want to begin by reading these verses once through together, carefully consider each of them as Peter, through the Holy Spirit, really has some important instruction for the church um, once again. So beginning in verse 13, here now is the word of the living and true God. Now, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart to everyone who out that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, as I've um, mentioned throughout um, our study of this uh, great epistle, Peter is writing to a group of scattered Believers, Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, who are enduring unjust suffering, fiery ordeal. And the kind of trouble that they're experiencing isn't just sort of this run of the generic um, kind of trouble, but rather, um, verse 14 that we just read tells us they are suffering for the sake of righteousness. But we shouldn't be surprised by this, beloved. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, it's it's not so much that they hate you as their hatred is important. All right? But they hate Christ. Jesus said, if you were of the world, well then, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said, greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And look, we've experienced God's favor for hundreds and hundreds of years here in the U.S., and uh, we have been incredibly blessed over that time but that hasn't been the reality for most Christians most of the time Um, in fact uh, I've shared chapter 3 verse 12 Paul tells us indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted so The further we go into these last days, the more we should expect to see even more hostility and even more hatred aimed at those who are in Christ and live to bring glory to his name. If you're uh, a so-called Christian who hides their faith and doesn't let anyone else know about it, well, then, yeah, you probably haven't felt too much pushback from the world. But if you share and demonstrate just a little bit of Christ, it won't take long for someone in the world to show their hatred for him. Now, you'll recall back in chapter 1, Peter called these Christians, God-elect exiles. God's elect exiles. It's the word electos. And it means the called out ones, the chosen And Peter uses his word so he's persecuted the chosen of the world but they are the chosen of God. What comfort that would have brought to them. And as exiles on earth, we live as temporary residents. We're never to put our roots too far into the ground here on earth because our true citizenship is in heaven. We don't belong here. We are set apart for the glory of God to be a light to the rest of the world. In chapter 1, verse 15, Peter is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. chapter 9, he identifies believers as a chosen race. Well, that sets us apart. You're a royal priesthood. That sets you apart. You're a holy nation. That sets us apart. You're a people for God's own possession. And that also distinguishes us from everybody else in the rest of the world. So we're a society within a society. We are governed by God. We are governed by God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have convictions and beliefs and principles and pleasures that are totally different and foreign from the rest of the world. We don't fit in. We are completely distinct. We do not love the world or anything in the world, 1 John 2 says. We are not friends of the world, John 4, 4 says. We are in the world, but not of the world, Jesus said in John 15. And so this is what sets the stage for hostility, animosity, hatred, persecution... Here we are, a holy people in the middle of a unholy world. Here we are, people who belong to God, surrounded by people who belong to Satan. Here we are, priests of God, rubbing shoulders with priests. And consequently, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11, you are aliens and strangers. We felt like that before. Now, <clears throat> given that scenario, especially to Peter's readers, uh, survival would kind of be a triumph. Just making it through the day. Just to survive all that hatred and the animosity and the rejection that they were going, persecution, because of who they were, would be accomplishment in itself. But to make it even more challenging, we are who we are in the world, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So not only were they trying to survive all the animosity and the hatred and the persecution that Satan in the kingdom of darkness has brought against them, not only were they trying to survive, but while surviving, at the same time of surviving, trying to reach them with the gospel of grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness that they themselves had so graciously received. It'd be one thing if we could fight the enemy, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood we are being sent to convert the enemy. We are sent out as God's ambassadors for Christ. Now, from chapter 2, verse 13, right through to chapter 3, verse 12, um, over the last several weeks, Peter's been talking about these um, three different areas of social relationship and how in every relationship in society, we are to live evangel- evangelistically. Right? Right? for every relationship is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into its it's evangelistic in nature. That's why Peter gave us all the instructions to humble ourselves, to to be a witness, to be a light in all these different spheres of society. Look, um, we don't like the way the world is, do we? I mean, we don't like the attack on truth. Um, We don't like the attack on uh, morality and honesty and dignity. We don't like the attack on the nuclear family. We don't like escalating crime and and moral perversions. We don't like any of that. In fact, we resent it. And and we certainly resent it um, with a righteous indignation. I'm sure you've all experienced that. But we can't on one hand say, We stand for righteousness and on the authority of God's word. And then on the other hand, go against what the word of God says. And what did Peter say in chapter two, verse 19? For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently enduring it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So that's what we've been called to do. We're to follow in Jesus' steps. We do what is right. If we suffer, we patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. High marching orders. We entrust ourselves to him who judges righteously. Look, this is an incredibly difficult discipline. I've had a very challenging time studying to teach these verses. Um, Even in today's day and age, I can honestly can't even imagine what it would have been like to live this out in Peter's time for Peter's readers to receive but this is fulfilling Jesus teaching of loving so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven so when someone sees the way that you treat even someone who has wronged you they think man they must be a child of God that's not how I would handle it only your son or daughter of the king would treat someone that way after, after someone has wronged you. What humility and compassion that you possess. And while certainly this may take a while to grow in having authentic love for your enemy, we can all start from a place of forgiveness, compassion, and grace where we don't have a, a heart of constant resentment, hatred, and anger, but rather we have a heart to evangelize the lost, Parable of the unforgiving servant. In the future, the raptured church, angels during the time of tribulation will preach the eternal gospel in the sky, Revelation 14, 6 says. In Revelation 11, 11 there's uh, two witnesses who will preach and have miracles. Talks about one hundred forty-four thousand Messianic Jews. There will be great revival, maybe the greatest revival ever during the tribulation. God will keep, though judgment is raining out. Keep proclaiming the gospel in all of those ways. But until then, we're God's ambassadors. We've been commissioned. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, Jesus said, all that I've commanded you. Now, as persecution comes, we have every right to protect our families. Uh, we have to protect our congregations, pastors. Um, but at the same time, we have to continue to be the light of the gospel. So, how do we find security in this kind of a world while? still living for Christ and, and obeying what he's command. Well, Peter addresses that in chapter 3 starting in verse 13 with some really basic practical instruction. And I think this will be extremely helpful for us even now. Here's the heart of our comfort. Here's the, the heart of our confidence. Here's the, the heart of our hope. Here's the heart of Of our peace. Here are the attitudes necessary to to fortify us and to enable us in the midst of all this to keep extending the, the eternal gospel. So let's look at number one. Peter says you need a passion for doing good, you need a passion for doing good. This is even as persecution escalates around us. Notice what Peter says there in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, you might have noticed this isn't some profound heavenly doctrine here, um, but rather a, a proverbial, self evident truth. It's a proverb, essentially. Even in this hostile uh, world, um, people will have a harder time. Good, who are are benefactors of society, who are gracious to others, who are unselfish, kind, compassionate, merciful, long-suffering, understanding. Peter says, "Start there. Start there. Don't start by getting bitter. Don't start by getting defensive. Don't start by getting angry." you just keep doing what is good. Paul says in 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15, "See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another." And the word good here refers generally to a life characterized by kindness, thoughtfulness towards others. Start there in your life. Start there. This is this is something I can start by doing. Don't let hostility or, or an anti-Christian attitude or, or when we see corruption happening all over our world direct you towards vengeance, animosity, hostility. Don't return evil for evil is what we're being command, commanded. Let your passion be instead for what is good and that honor. And if that's the character of your life, Peter asks the rhetorical question, who is there to harm you? And the implied answer is, is very few. So then he adds this, if you prove zealous for what is good. In other words, if that is zealot for what is good. Now, what does this word zealot mean? Well, it is a person with a passion. A person with a passion. If you study the time leading up to um, the New Testament period between the Old and New Testament, um, you would know that during that time there was a group of people called zealots. And um, they were essentially these fanatical patriots in Israel, and they pledged to liberate Israel from all foreign pagan rule at every cost. All costs. In other words, they were so committed to the liberation of Israel that they would literally murder, and they were willing to lay down their lives if necessary for the cause. That's how devoted they were. In fact, there was one of them among the twelve whose name was Simon the zealot so Peter's saying you be a zealot only you be a zealot for what is good you have such passion for what is good such passion for kindness such passion for mercy such passion to love one another that who would there be to harm you that's the heart of this question Now, that's just a a general principle to start. Peter's going, not going to just leave us there. But that's the first security he wants to bring up. You must have a passion for doing what is good. But quickly, what number two is? A willingness to suffer. A willingness to suffer for righteousness. And again, this is unpopular. Most churches won't preach this. But we'll just preach the text. And see what God has for us. I think it's something pretty great here. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer. For the sake of righteousness. You are blessed. (laughs) So let's assume that you're being. Zealous for what is good. You are passionate for what is good. You're a, a benevolent person. You're kind. You're generous. Compassionate. Totally unselfish long-suffering, it could still happen. You could still suffer for the sake of righteousness. Now, I love how this verse begins. The old English word for that would be perchance. If perchance, I mean, there's a chance you could still be persecuted anyways. Lots of folks have been passionate about doing what is good. They've been persecuted. No guarantee. (laughs) No guarantee here. That's not the heart of his point. I mean, lots of folks have been passionate about doing what's good. Look at the missionaries. All the missionaries who've endured horrible persecution for the sake of the cross and the gospel. Brothers and sisters even now are being locked up or even worse than in communist countries. Preachers were arrested and jailed for preaching the gospel right over the border in Canada during this COVID charade. That happened. The Christians Peter's writing to, all they wanted to do was live quiet, peaceful lives, honoring Christ, loving their fellow man. And yet they were brooded by the Caesar Nero. So Peter says, but even if some of you perchance should suffer for the sake of righteousness, that means for upright, godly behavior, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. I mentioned it earlier, but um, why don't you turn to First Peter chapter two, verse twelve for a moment? This um, section, which is very similar again, to sort of the major theme of Peter's letter. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be shocked when it comes. I'm always shocked at Christians who are surprised. <laughs> Have you not read your Bibles? It's coming. It's here. Just don't be surprised. Which it comes upon you for your Testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, don't think of it as some strange thing that should never occur. We should never be going through this. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, this is when he returns, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you, here it is again, are blessed. Look at the the connecting. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name, in the name of Christ. And there again, Peter says basically the same thing. You may, in fact, suffer for doing what is good, but there's a sense in which you can share in the sufferings of Christ. All right. And if you are reviled for his name, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, you who are highly favored. In other words, God is not only with you through the sufferings, but he will have a purpose in it all should it happen. God is sovereign. God is just. God is righteous. And uh, that's why I put, actually, First Peter chapter 3, verse 17, also in this point, as it expands on this. It says, for it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer, okay? See it there in your Bibles? Well, that, that can't be God's will. Well, if God wills it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for... Than for doing what is wrong. And I can't help but think of the Apostle Paul. In texts like these. Because these are really hard to study. To to pray on and say. How can I be effective teaching this truth? Because most people will turn this off immediately. This has no benefit for me. I'm not interested in any of that suffering stuff. Let me go through any of that. Prosper, prosper, prosper. And yet, you can't be reading much of your Bible because Paul got persecution from both sides of the aisles. Jews hated them, and the Gentiles hated Paul. Paul might as well walk into every new town he walked into and say, where's the jail I'm going to be locked up in tonight? I want to get to know my area here. I mean, he endured all of those beatings and, and imprisonments, and yet Paul says in Philippians three to me, I count them all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He, he considered everything else garbage, dung, all my accolades, all my things, all my wisdom. kind of like Solomon. He had it all, and at the end saw it was worth absolutely nothing. Without knowing Christ. And that's what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him. And look how intimately Paul desired to know him. And the and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what woke Paul up in the morning. We all got our happy Bible verses. This is what got Paul going. This is what Paul desired. There's wisdom and further wisdom. It'll start with, with, with up here, but then it goes down into the heart to something really special. Pray on this stuff. Ask God if, if you haven't gone through a time of suffering and turned to him and found comfort in him, you're missing out. Ask the Spirit to, to lead you in this. There's fellowship in suffering. And, and the Apostle Paul found intimate fellowship and considered it, a privilege to suffer for the name. And if I remember right, wasn't that what the Lord actually said? I've got something special for for Paul. He's going to be my my disciple, my witness, and he's going to suffer. He'll suffer for the name. But what does Peter mean? Going back to verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. How are those persecuted blessed? Well, we've Essentially, you already answered that, but um, I want to show you just a couple more looks at it. 1 Peter chapter 5, right here, still in the same book. He explains some of the ways that you'll be blessed. Chapter 5, verse 10. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect and establish you. Peter's not the New Testament. Uh, Express uh, blessings and suffering. Jesus' brother James, you know the verse. Chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all. Joy, my brethren, when encountering various trials, and again, testings, if you will, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that it may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so in our trials, God actually uses them to stretch our spiritual muscles, producing perseverance for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, let us throw everything off that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then there is this teaching of our Lord that uh, Peter likely, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, again, familiar verses but so true jesus said blessed oh blessed 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 are you blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness there's our same language for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me see it's not because of you it's because of me rejoice he says Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. And then he adds this wonderful statement. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, you are privileged to take the blows meant. You are promised an eternal reward. And you've just been added to a pretty elite group of people, the prophets Who have suffered before you for the name. All of those make you very blessed, beloved. And then at the end of verse 14, it says, And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. This is actually being quoted out of Isaiah chapter 8, 12 through 13. Asian by Assyria, Ahaz, the king of uh, Judah, faced a crisis the kings of Israel and Assyria had sought to make an alliance with them against the Assyrians. Therefore, Assyria and Israel threatened to invade Judah. Meanwhile, Ahaz had allied Judah with Assyria, but the prophet Isaiah warned him against such ungodly alliance and told him not to be afraid. Don't make this alliance. Don't be afraid. Thus says the Lord. Well, Ahaz and the people of Judah we're not to fear Assyria, but rather fear the Lord by trusting in him. So by Peter actually quoting this verse here, he's saying, don't be anxious. Don't be shaken. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body and not the soul. It literally means actually, do not fear the fear they're trying to get you to fear. <laughs> do not fear the fear they're trying to get you. Trust in the Lord. Fear God rather than man. I'm sure you've all heard uh, John Bunyan uh, before, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Um, He was in in England um, for over 12 years. Um, His crime, you ask, preaching the true gospel outside of the church in his friend's home. Now, he could have walked out after just three months if he promised not to preach outside of the church anymore. But he could never do that and even though he had a wife and child, he said, "I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make, a, b- before I make a, butch, a butchery, a butchery of my conscience, butchery, butchery, butchery." He also wrote this short little piece while he was in prison. He says, "This prison, very since I came here, and so would also a hanging be if thou didst then appear." Um, And beloved, as darker days indeed um, come for us, we will need Christians who are courageous, bold, righteous, zealous for what is good and have persecuted to encourage others by rejoicing in the special glory that God has bestowed on them, both now and giving the honor to suffer for Christ and one day rewarding them in heaven. Willingness to suffer for righteousness. That is a good security to have. That's security number three. We all need a devotion to Christ. A devotion to Christ. Notice verse 15. And let's just stop right there. That word sanctifying means to to set apart. to, To be set apart from all others. Everything else. Sanctify then Christ as Lord in your hearts. Rather than being afraid... Rather than being fearful of persecution, simply revere Christ, honor Christ, adore Christ. Recognize He is He who is the one who is sovereign and glorious and majestic and beautiful. Give to Christ the awe and reverence He deserves. And I shall also note Peter is still quoting from Isaiah 8.13 here, though it's a little bit more of a paraphrase. So when Peter says, sanctifies Christ as Lord in your hearts, Isaiah says it this way. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. So instead of being imitators, um, intimidated by enemies, um, simply sanctify hearts. For him you shall honor as holy. Kind of like Proverbs chapter 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. Psalm uh, 37, verse 5, commit your ways unto the Lord and trust in him to Break the the three. These men and women would have faced during this horrific persecution. Confess God's lordship with more than a mental assent. We must confess it in our hearts' devotion. Setting Christ apart as Lord means we bow the knee before Him in in adoration and in praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of man. It is immune to the fear of man. Fear of another, like King Ahaz experienced. Takes possession of your heart and your mind. Those are the things that keep you up at night and you're you're still worrying about those things. Peter's saying, Do not fear what they fear, but in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. We're here to recognize Christ as Lord in our hearts, oh his glory, his his perfection, his sovereignty, and his ways are higher than my ways, so I submit myself to his will and his purpose and his plan for me. And in the midst of trying you don't focus on the persecutor. You don't focus on the persecution. Focus on Christ. Deep, loving, loyal, committed, submitted to his will. Give me peace. I need his peace in the face of this kind of hostility. The principle that will certainly help secure us in trial. Number four is a readiness to defend the faith. A readiness to defend the faith. Notice the rest of verse 15. It says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When people say to you, you know, why won't you just recant? Right? Why do you insist on preaching this this message? Why don't you just go along with the culture? Why don't you at this time accept Caesar as Lord? Just accept Caesar as Lord. Not this Christ. And we'll let you live. Why won't you accept what the rest of the culture accepts? Why are you taking a position, for example, against abortion? Why are you taking these um, positions against the gay marriages? Why are you taking positions against fornication? Why not just, just roll with the culture and make life easy for yourself? Why won't you just go with the flow? Peter is saying... Whenever you have to def- defend why you live the way you live, whenever you have to defend why you follow the word and not man, whenever you have to defend Christ's lordship, Peter says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks. The word for defense uh, here, by the way, is the word apologia. Um, that's where we get our, our word apologetic. And apologist for the faith, for the faith. That word, by the way, can refer to a formal or informal informal defense. In some cases, Christians have to make a, a formal defense. <laughs> some of them are, are doing it right now in, in Arab countries and around the world where they're standing before magistrates and judges and they have to defend the fact that they will not recant the gospel and embrace Islam, for example. Some go to prison, some get their heads chopped off, some face execution that's a formal defense in a, in a legal situation and many of these early believers could very well be dragged registrates and they had to always be ready to make a defense in fact we see it happen all the time in with paul paul went through that several times and and then other times we deal with an informal defense i'm sure somebody has asked you before why do you believe in jesus christ why do you believe in the bible why do you believe that? Why do you go to church? You know, why do you have a, a more why don't you just go along with what the rest of us say? Peter says, always be ready to make a defense. Always. To anyone. To anyone who asks you. And then he goes on to say, to give an account for the hope that is in you. Is that great? We should be ready to give a defense, a personal defense. Why we hope in Christ. Why we hope. And what is our hope? Our debt has been paid. The cross is sufficient. I have been forgiven. The forgiveness of your debts and sins. At the cross, Jesus said, It was finished. It is eternal life with Christ. Peter says, Our defense should be connected to the hope that is in you. The hope that is in you. And for Peter, the apostle, he links hope not only to our faith, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and for his people. In chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter really loves this word hope, by the way. He uses it throughout. He uses it in chapter 1, verse 21. Starting in verse 20, He, meaning Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him as believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Beloved, this is the hope that is in you. This is the hope. You have a living faith, life, you doesn't end at the grave or in hell because god's great mercy he's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead romans 8 verse 11 says if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead dwells in you he meaning god who raised christ jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you beloved this is our living hope we rejoice and reign with Christ spiritually, yes, and physically renewed on a greater, restored, he will make all things new earth. So our hope is not some um, disembodied spirit floating around in the clouds. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen 13-14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And thus, verse 17, we shall always be with the Lord. Beloved, we do not have to grieve as others do who have no hope. So that is the hope that is in you. You possess a living hope. A living hope. Yet Peter says, when you make a defense, do so with gentleness and reverence. Always using gentleness and reverence when sharing the hope that is in you. Don't forget, you also once were blind, you also once were deaf to the things of the gospel. Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God will cause the growth. First Corinthians 3.6. Let me give you one final and very important reality. If you want to secure yourself in the midst of persecution... Have a pure conscience, a pure conscience. Verse 16, Peter continues. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The conscience is the soul reflecting on itself, both um, described in the Greek word here and also in our English word conscience that's sort of the the idea according to Romans chapter 2 14 through 16 even those who do not have the written law instinctively know the things of the law these not having the law Romans 2 says are a law to themselves verse 15 in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Verse 16, on the day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Essentially Romans 2 he's saying, conscience is a device that will either excuses you or accuses you. Okay? It either validates your behavior as being consistent with the word of truth or it validates it's inconsistent with God's truth. Paul's saying, live with a clear conscience so that your conscience doesn't condemn you when God will judge you the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And when your enemies see that in you, when they come to you and slander you and revile your good behavior in Christ, Peter says they will be put to shame. Your conscience, clear. But if you revile, When you've been reviled, if there's sin in your life, you're not going to have a clear conscience and you're not going to be at ease before God when trouble and persecution comes. But if your conscience is pure, if you were redeemed, if your conscience surveys your life and finds nothing by which that it can condemn it, then when persecution comes and you respond in trust, faith, peace, hope, joy, your enemies will be put to shame. That's the principle. So if this persecution does come, Peter says in verse 17, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Pretty basic, (laughs) right? Pretty basic. If God wills it for us and we must suffer, it is better we suffer for doing what is right. And we're right back to where we started. I can't tell you exactly um, what's going to come against us in the future, um, but I know that it's, it's coming. There's already been discussions and, and votes on, on state floors that the Bible to be labeled as hate speech. Christians are already being labeled in our media as fanatics, conspiracy theorists, hate groups, etc. And so as this continues to escalate and things get darker and for how long, how far will it go? What will happen? What form will it take ultimately? I don't know. But Jesus said persecution has going to come. It's going to come. However, our marching orders have stayed the same. We are the light of the world. Your job is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Have the only hope the world has ever seen. We possess the eternal gospel unto salvation. So you continue to be that shining light in the world so that men can see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. And you do that by having a passion for goodness, being willing to suffer, focusing on Christ, a readiness to share the faith, and keeping your conscience pure. If we live our lives like that, In the face of this, we can have confidence in the midst of of the worst that comes, whatever it is, God's eyes are on the righteous. Remember, we read this last week. God's eyes are on the righteous, his ears to our prayers, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you are in need of prayers this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of meditation, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.